Previously on Flying the Line, with waning support from his pilots, United MEC Chair John Ferg accepts a senior management post in the airline's flight ops department. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including the Guide to the Uniform Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act. The USERA Guide focuses on common questions that arise under the Act in the context of a career in aviation while still in the military. To access the guide, visit alpaorg resources or contact your local rep. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 16 of B-Scales and Alpa's Future, The United Strike of 1985, Part 2. After years of dealing with former United MEC Chair John Ferg, new Chair Roger Hall's calm demeanor must have struck CEO Dick Ferris as lacking the intensity the pilots would need in a strike. The soft-spoken Hall had little swagger or bravado, so how could he function effectively as a leader in a time of crisis? The answer was in Hall's talent for organization, preparation, and most of all, picking subordinates. Hall established a strike preparedness committee in September 1984, appointing Rick Dubinsky as chair. His first order for the committee was to study up on Continental. Dick Ferris had seen the future at Continental, and he wanted to be part of it. A cold panic gripped the United pilot leaders, forcing them to focus their attention the way an engine-out emergency would. Like a classic bully, Ferris taunted United's pilots, who had not been on strike since 1951. During that long-ago work stoppage, picketers marched, leaflets were distributed, and meetings were held. Nobody flew. Nobody. The airline shut down completely. But 34 years is a long time between strikes, and the current generation of United pilots would have to learn everything about this undertaking again. On the few occasions when they had honored other unions' picket lines during the intervening years, United pilots had really done nothing significant other than quietly not fly. Given the history of the then-recent strikes at Wien, Northwest, and the ongoing debacle at Continental, one can only imagine the United Pilots' state of mind. But the gauntlet was down, and the pilots had to either respond or give in. The job of preparing United's line pilots to wage this kind of campaign fell on Dubinsky's Strike Preparedness Committee, which included many astute veterans. They received valuable aid from volunteers like former MEC chairs Scotty Devine and Dick Cosgrave, who had both retired by 1985. These older pilots played an important role in mentally toughening the younger members with both practical and historical advice. Dick Ferris was going to have his test of strength. He had already cowed the mechanics and flight attendants into accepting a two-tier wage scale by 1985. If a fight must come, Ferris made an ideal opponent, because by 1985 he had so little credibility with his pilots. Following Branoff's bankruptcy in 1982, 
United pilots experienced the same unease as others in the airline industry, and they had slowly come to doubt not only Ferris's integrity, but his business sense as well. As we have already seen, the incompetence of airline executives at the time had become a mounting concern not only of Alpha's national officers, but of the line pilots as well. Clearly, Ferris's grand plans to make the airline one cog in Allegis, his integrated transportation company that would remake the industry, struck most United pilots as dubious. They had a healthy suspicion of diluting the company's basic business, which was flying airplanes, with risky expansions into areas where United had limited experience, such as hotels and car rentals. Eventually, United's pilots, acting on plans Roger Hall had concocted under a cloak of secrecy, would try to seize control of the airline from Ferris and Allegis. Through an instrument unique to progressive capitalism, an employee stock ownership plan, or ESOP, Hall led the pilots into a full-blown attempt to buy their own airline. Although this audacious post-strike effort failed to achieve its goal of an employee-owned airline, it did succeed in ousting Ferris. In 1987, largely because of stresses that the ESOP battle generated, United's board replaced Ferris with Continental's former president, Stephen Wolfe, who at least had some credibility with the pilots because he broke with Lorenzo just before the Continental strike. As we shall see, the ESOP effort had a far-reaching effect because it returned United to its airline roots, thus warning every airline executive that pilots would take extreme financial measures to preserve their profession. Comparable reckless corporate maneuvers would invite retaliation. The fall of Dick Ferris was a warning to every executive in the industry that their actions could have profound personal consequences. But all that was in the future. For the present, 1985, negotiations deadlocked over Ferris's insistence on concessions that almost made blue skies look good by comparison. At the annual stockholders' meeting in April 1985, it was pointed out that United's pilot pay scales were already lower than Americans, but Ferris insisted on comparisons with Continental's pilot pay. United's pilots were in no mood to make Continental-style concessions, for under blue skies, the company had returned to profitability. Roger Hall, a methodical man who took on one problem at a time, would not let Ferris stampede him. While the unproductive talks dragged on, United's pilots were far from idle. To pressure Ferris into signing a reasonable contract, the pilots had, in 1984, tried various forms of job actions, most notably a program they called Withdrawal of Enthusiasm, essentially the tactic of working to the book, doing just what the job required and no more. However, nothing worked. The ultimate test loomed, with a question hanging in the air, would United's pilots actually strike? Each pilot had to make that decision alone. There would be no place to hide. Roger Hall and Rick Dubinsky made their preparations, insisting that nothing be left to chance so that no distractions would divert the pilots from the main matter. One bright spot emerged. Should it come to a strike, money would not be a problem. For years, United had paid more into Alpa's national treasury 
than any other pilot group. Now they wanted it back. Hank Duffy, still embroiled in the long contest at Continental, understood the stakes as he met with Rick Dubinsky in late 1984 to talk about money. The United Pilot Investigators, early in their study of what went wrong at Continental, isolated the role of spouses, which, as we have seen, proved critical. The key to keeping family members on board would be pre-strike education about ALPA's history and role, plus innovative communications during the strike. These entailed regular videotape updates, traditional telephone chains, and non-traditional satellite communications links among mass meetings at United's various domiciles. All this would not only cost a lot of money, but also require months of preparation. Rick Dubinsky's study group, now officially designated the Strike Committee, began receiving full funding from ALPA in October 1984. Eventually, the 29-day strike would cost ALPA $10 million, and that did not include any of the strike benefits paid to United Pilots. Everybody knew that if, on the heels of the Continental debacle, the pilots lost this battle with Dick Ferris, ALPA's future looked dim. In a very real sense, United's pilots would be fighting for ALPA's very survival. In a meeting with ALPA President Hank Duffy, Ferris divulged that if there was a strike, he already had a group of working pilots and that he'd have 10% of his operations running by the first week. By the end of the first month, he'd have 20%, and 30% by the second month. Ferris added that he had a $1 billion line of credit that he was perfectly willing to use, that ALPA was broke, and that there was no way the union could manage. As summer approached and negotiations remained deadlocked, Ferris rather surprisingly made an attack on Rick Dubinsky, going over the heads of the pilots' elected representatives. By this time, the strike committee was in full swing, and Dubinsky was visibly and combatively out front, bringing the same energy that he had invested five years earlier in Operation USA, which first gained him national attention. As part of Ferris's ill-fated roadshows between April 29th and May 5th, which the pilots generally boycotted, he floated the rumor that Dubinsky was willing to lead the strike only because he was independently wealthy and didn't need his job. This classic bit of disinformation actually had many United pilots believing it. Dubinsky insisted he was as dependent on his salary as any other pilot, despite a settlement he had received from a hospital because of negligence in the death of his wife some years earlier. The son of a union meat cutter from St. Louis, Dubinsky had grown up in a working-class family. While studying mechanical engineering, he worked part-time as a research assistant for Monsanto, the St. Louis chemical giant. He paid for his own flying lessons, and United hired him during the 1965 pilot shortage. In the early 1970s, Dubinsky achieved some fleeting notoriety as one of the hair grievers. United insisted on military haircuts for line pilots, regardless of the longer styles than in fashion. Because corporate regulations on hair length were imprecise and clashed with the ideals of several young pilots, they filed grievances. This episode illustrated not only a bit of historical trivia, but also Dubinsky's willingness to resist authority when he thought it wrong. 
In April 1985, United's pilots got final proof that no concession short of utter surrender would avert a strike. United's pilot negotiators agreed to some form of B-scale, in principle. It was a major concession, one that the pilots believed would be the basis for further negotiations leading to a settlement. But to make sure that Ferris didn't interpret this concession as a sign of weakness, United's MEC also recommended a strike authorization vote. United's 5,000 pilots supported their leaders by approving a walkout set for May 17, 1985. Armed with this authorization, intensive negotiations under National Mediation Board auspices entered the final phase. Hank Duffy, who followed these developments closely, still believed a settlement could be achieved. With the high-traffic summer months nearing, the two sides reached an impasse, and the NMB released the parties, freeing them to engage in self-help. In the last negotiations, attention focused not on Ferris's demand for a B-scale, but on its nature. Ferris wanted a B-scale that would end for new hires only after they made captain. If history was any guide, no United new hire could expect to make captain for at least 20 years. The pilots held out for a B-scale that would merge after six years. Americans' B-scale at the time would never merge. As the May 17th strike deadline neared, Ferris played his trump card. Through carefully orchestrated news releases, Ferris announced that he would hire permanent replacements in the event of a strike. To back up his threat, Ferris had, since December 1984, trained, but not hired, 570 new second officers, telling them that they would be used for expansion. Clearly, Ferris expected to lure first officers across the picket line with promises of instant promotions and to use the 570, as they came to be known, to fill out scab crews. The 570 were thus in an unusual position, clearly contingent pilots having neither union protection nor standing as employees. Only good fortune made United's pilots aware of the 570. Ferris had trained them quietly in small groups at United's Denver Training Center. However, Jamie Lindsay, a second-generation airline pilot whose father had flown for both United and American, noticed them while undergoing first officer upgrade training in January 1985. The new trainees with the odd name tags told Lindsay they were pre-hires who would be coming on the line as soon as Alpa signed a new contract. Lindsay promptly phoned Roger Hall in Chicago. He later discovered that the 570 group was receiving only 19 days of training instead of the usual four to six weeks, that these new hires were being paid a flat per diem rate of $26 with no allowance for either food or lodging, and that they were as bewildered about their status as Alpa was about them. In short order, it became clear to everybody that the 570 were a strikebreaker force in training, and that Alpa had better get in touch with them soon. Lindsay helped set up a systematic outreach program with tutoring for pre-hires each evening staffed by Alpa volunteers. Lindsay joked that it was easy to contact the cash-strapped pre-hires. All he had to do was put out a sign that said, Welcome Meeting, ALPA, Free Food. 
Since the 570 were getting non-standard training but still had to go through the regular exams, they were very grateful. This assistance proved to the 570 in concrete terms that Alpa was more interested in their welfare than management was. But Alpa had other things than the 570 to worry about. Next time on Flying the Line, a 29-day strike tests the fortitude of the United Pilots and Alpa as a whole. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 16, Part 2 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins, Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or find us on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright Alpa 2024, all rights reserved.